Okay, up in the upper left-hand corner of this diagram, you see the little circle with the triangle and the circle with the square. That's Sarah and Abraham. Okay? Then you see a dotted line going across from Abraham to the other guy, and that's Nahor and his wife Milcah. Okay? Below Sarah and Abraham, you see the dotted line going down to Isaac. So Isaac is the son, the progeny of Sarah and Abraham. Under Nahor and Milcah, you see a daughter named uh, Bethuel. I mean, excuse me, you see a, 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 a man named Bethuel, <clears throat> excuse me, who marries, and we don't know the name of his wife. And they have a daughter named Rebecca. So Isaac marries his first cousin once removed. Okay? So there's inbreeding going on. But that's, that's the reality, okay? Abraham and Nahor were brothers, the son of Terah. Nahor's granddaughter, Rebekah, marries Abraham's son, Isaac. Now that may sound weird, but think about it. Abraham and Sarah didn't have children until they were nearly 100 years old. So, Isaac is about the same age, or just a little older than Rebekah. So even though... They're different generations. They're about the same age. Okay? So, that's endogamy. Now, this mechanistic oracle. Oh, I'm sorry. Before we go to that, let me also talk to you about what happened. In, if you look at verses 10 through 27, you see where um, Eliezer goes into the house. I mean, Eliezer comes up with Rebecca and it says that he gives her um, a golden nose ring that weighs about a half shekel, and two golden bracelets that weigh about ten shekels. Okay? Again, measurements translating into American, or to my understanding, uh, a half shekel is about one-fifth of an ounce, and ten shekels is about four ounces. So, we've got 4.2 ounces of gold. I looked online this morning... To what the price of gold was as of today, the price of gold is $1,136.27 an ounce. So, taking $1,136.27 and multiply times 4.2 ounces, Eliezer gave Rebecca $4,772.34 worth of jewelry because she gave the camels some, some water. Handed her $5,000 worth of jewelry in today's money. That was a significant amount because 10 shekels of silver would be equal to one year's wages back then. And gold was much more valuable than silver. And so what he did when he gave her that, this was a significant thing. And it says that then she went back home and she was like, look, look. <laughs> so, this, and this is what caught Laban's attention. Now, we know from future stories that Laban is kind of a shady character. But at this point, he seems kind of honorable. He says, well, the Lord must have brought you here. I think it was, well, look at all that gold you gave my sister. <laughs> there must be more where that came from. Honestly, that's what I think I hear happening here. But that's not in the scriptures. That's just my conjecture. Okay? But... Abraham specifically said to Eleazar, 
Eleazar, I need you to go to my people and get a wife for my son. He literally made him swear. He had to put his hand on his thigh and swear that he'd do it. And Eliezer's concern was, well, what happens if I go and I can't find her or she won't come with me? And, they, and, and Abraham's words were, God himself will send his own angel ahead of you to prepare the way. So then Eliezer gets to Haran. And as he's outside the village, he comes to where the girls come to get water out of the well at the time that it happens. And he gets on his face before God and he says, show me who you've chosen. Let this be the sign. I need you to please, when I ask for a drink of water, have the young woman who you've chosen say, not only will I give you a drink of water, but I'll also water the camels. And the thing that's significant about this, okay, the gold is significant because of the value. The thing that's significant about this is that it's normal for hospitality purposes for anyone to say, can you give me a drink of the water from the jug that you just pulled up? And they would just, that, that would be obligated to say, of course. That's the normal custom in that time. But for her to water the camels, one of the, study, one of the comments that I read said a camel can drink upwards of 25 gallons. So now you figure 10 camels times 25 gallons, she had to get 250 gallons in a jar. Have you ever tried to carry a 5-gallon jug of water? So it was probably less than 5 gallons that she was carrying, maybe 2 gallons. That meant that she had to make 400, almost 500 trips down to that well to get a jug and dump it into the trough. And get, it took a lot of effort for her. To do this. It was a significant thing to do it out of the kindness of her heart. There was nobody asking her to do it. It was not an obligation. The culture didn't demand it. She simply said, sure, I'll get you a drink of water. And while you're at it, I'll go ahead and water the camels for you. This was a significant way for Eliezer to understand that God had identified Rebekah. See, this is called mechanistic oracle. And what this means is, you come to your deity, your God, and you say, Oh God, if this is your will, I'm going to lay this fleece out, and I'm going to ask you to please let all the dew be everywhere as it normally would be, but let the fleece stay dry. And the next morning you go out, and the fleece is indeed dry when dew is heavy everywhere else. And then you say, oh God, please don't be angry, but would you please do the reverse tomorrow morning? I'm going to leave the fleece out here. Tomorrow morning, would you let this be soaking wet with dew and nothing else be dry? I mean, nothing else be wet. Let everything else be dry. And the next morning, Gideon went out, and this, that's exactly what happened. That's what Gideon was practicing. Mechanistic oracle. Think about the times when the Ark of the Covenant had been captured and Phineas and Hophni had been killed in the battle and Eli died as a result of the news that he received. And it said that the, that the Philistines kept this Ark of the Covenant for a number of months and God kept pouring out tumors and rats and other pestilences on them until finally they said, we can't deal with this. And they handed it off to another city and another city and finally they all said, we, we don't want this, let's send it back to the Israelites. And so what they did was they took a cart and they put the, uh, the uh, Ark of the Covenant on the cart 
and then they put two cows that, or two oxen that were that had calves. They put them on the cart, put the calves back in the barn, and they released them. And their words were, "If these oxen take the cart straight into the town of the Jews, then we know that indeed their God has had a hand in this. If it doesn't." then we know this was just coincidence and there was nothing from their God harming us. And we read in that story that that, uh, the oxen literally left their calves and walked straight to the village where the Jews were. And so the Philistines understood at that point that God indeed was the one bringing the torments on them. So that was mechanistic oracle. And if you think it sounds like hocus-pocus mumbo-jumbo stuff, think about this. When Moses received the orders from God on Mount Sinai on how they were to practice their worship, one of the key things that the high priest had to wear was an ephod, a breastplate, if you will. Contained within that ephod was a pocket that had what was called the Urim and the Thummim. And they were basically two sticks. One side was black, one side was white, one side was black, one side was white, and they would go, Oh God, do you want David to go into battle against the Philistines today? Yup. Now that sounds really goofy, but that's exactly when you read in the Bible, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said yes or no. That's exactly what they were doing. Throwing guts, basically. Seven come eleven. Mama needs a new pair of shoes. Yes. They literally believed that God would orchestrate how those Urim and Thummim would fall. And I honestly don't know if it's black was yes and white was no and black and white was maybe. I really don't know the answer to that. But they literally, that's how they did it. So when David or Solomon or any of the kings of Israel needed to know God's will... They'd rub those sticks together and let them fall, and however it fell, that was God's answer to them. So this was not some hocus-pocus thing, some, some superstitious thing. This was how they discerned God's voice. Well, Eleazar, years and years and years, a thousand years before Moses, was practicing this when he got on his face before God in the dam of Haran and said, Oh God, would you show me your perfect will? I have committed to my master Abraham that I will come and get a wife for his son Isaac. And he gave me specific instructions to go to his family. Well, I don't know who I'm looking for, but you do. So God, would you please show me through this means. And so that's exactly what happened. Rebecca came answered almost word for word what had been said, and the end result was that she got $5,000 worth of jewelry. Now, the next thing in this story, if you're following along in the chapter, is that Rebecca runs home and says, Mom, Dad, look, Laban, look what I got! This guy in the street, he was just sad, he was waving, he told me, I need this, and, and the Laban comes running out to the square, and he says to Eliezer, come on, we've got everything prepared for you, we've got food, we've got a place for your camels, come on! And so he comes, 
And they're about to feed him. And Eliezer says, before I do anything, receive any of your hospitality, I have got to let you know why I'm here. And so he goes through the whole thing again. Word for word, line by line, my master told me to do this. I prayed to God. God revealed to me through Rebecca's actions. And here it is. And Laban's words are, this is of the Lord. Of course she can marry your, your, your master's son. Of course she can marry him. And then Eleazar breaks out the bride price. He breaks out all the costly things that he has brought on ten camels. This was a significant event where Abraham was showing that God had poured out blessing upon blessing upon blessing to Abraham and he sent it back with his servant to go buy the bride for his son. And so Laban and Bethuel and Bethuel's wife benefited from this. And then the next thing we read is that the next morning when Eliezer wants to get up and leave, Laban says, oh, wait, give us ten days. Give us ten days. Let her stay with us for a little while longer. And Eliezer's like, no. God has made me successful. I need to get back to my master. He's, he's at the end of his life. I need to be back there. And so Bethuel, the father, and Laban, the brother, say, well, let's ask Rebecca. Whatever she says, that's what we'll do. So they turn to Rebecca, and she says, what, they say, what do you think? Do you want to go with him now, or do you want to wait a couple weeks? And she's like, well, I'm ready to go right now. And so they load up, and they head back. And again, it's a three-week journey back to, uh, to the area of Canaan where... Um, it's called the Gidnega, which is down in the lower part near the, the, the Dead Sea. And it says when they arrived in the area, that evening Isaac had gone out to do some evening meditations. And he sees the camels arriving in the distance. And then Rebecca comes down off the camel. She puts her veil on and then she goes meets him. And then they fall in love. And then they get married. And they live happily ever after. Okay? For a while. Um, but there's something that I wanted to talk about about this idea of providence, okay? This is the story that we've looked at, but there's some things that you can just kind of gloss over if you don't think about it, okay? First of all, first of all, Abraham says to Eleazar, God himself will send his angel ahead of you. That tells you a little bit about Abraham's theology. He believes that God intimately works with human beings and even does things in advance to prepare for what is to come. Okay? Then we look at Eleazar. Eleazar was a servant. He wasn't a child in Abraham's household. He was the chief servant. But we can see that from his actions when he gets to Haran, that he has been discipled by Abraham in what it means to trust in, believe on the Lord Yahweh. Yahweh, Jireh, uh, 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 Jehovah Jireh, the provider. Okay, Because remember when Isaac was being sacrificed on Mount Moriah, that, Jesus, that uh, Abraham called God Jehovah Jireh, our provider. He is the one who will provide the sacrifice. So he taught Eliezer, God will provide. And Eliezer proves through his interaction with God when he gets to Haran that that's how he lives his life. 
Oh God, I am walking by faith in this. I have made a commitment to my master that I will go to his people and get a bride for his son. But I haven't a clue. I don't know where to turn. I only can trust you, oh God. And I am trusting that you're going to be so intimately involved with this transaction that you're going to reveal to me in this very specific way. So Eliezer believes in God's providence. Okay? <clears throat> Rebecca, I think, is clueless. I think she's just a wide-eyed, innocent girl in this story. I don't think that she necessarily has any deep theological training. I think that she's just going, Yay! My ship has come in! Because if I get $5,000 just for watering camels, what's going to be back there waiting for me as the mistress of this household? So I think she's just like, Yeah! There wasn't anybody here in Haran that I was going to be that pining over. I'm going there. So I don't see a lot of theological stuff in her world, but Laban and Bethuel also seem to see God's hand in this. Because they're very quick to say, if this, this is the course of the Lord, after hearing Eliezer's, Eliezer's story, this is the course of the Lord, so of course she can marry. There was never a question of if she could marry. The question was, when would she leave? Okay? So we see from Abraham's perspective, he believed that God was a provider and God would go before his servant and pave the way. We believe, I mean, Eliezer believed that God was intimately involved and would listen to his prayers and would specifically answer through mechanistic oracle, the Urim and Thummim, that God would bring about his purposes by revealing to Eliezer which girl God had already foreordained for um, for her, for, for Isaac to have as a wife. And then finally, the people made who had the right by that culture to decide who their daughter gets to marry or who his sister gets to marry, Laban and Bethel, they also recognize that God is in this. God has revealed his purposes and plans to them through all of these transactions, and so they agree to this marriage. Okay? So the key players who have the, the decisions to make, Abraham, Eliezer, and Laban, all three of them see God's hand of providence in this story. Now, we sing, This is my father's world. And to my listening ears, I was going to get the words out, but, I, but you know what I'm talking about. This idea that we trust that God has his hand on everything. We trust that God is in charge of everything. But think about the mechanics of this providential event. If Eliezer had refused, if Eliezer hadn't done what he had been taught to do as far as praying and mechanistic oracle, I'm sure Abraham taught him that. If Rebecca hadn't said, and I'll water your camels too, she would have just given him a drink and walked home. And Eliezer would never have known. So there was some element of human responsibility in this working out of God's plan. And that's where it gets kind of dicey for us, okay? Because it's very easy to say, God ordains. God in his power is providentially over all. And he sustains and ordains and governs and declares. 
But we also, as Wesley and Arminians say, God has given us free will. If we don't have to choose Christ, but are given the opportunity to say yes or no, then where does providence end and where does free will start? And is it possible that our poor choices could thwart the purposes and plans of God? Or is it that God says, this is going to happen whether you're part of it or not, and if you refuse to be part of this, I'll just find somebody else who will be. In other words, my plan is going to come about regardless, and I'm going to give you the blessing of being part of it, and if you choose not to, that's okay, I'll find somebody else to bless. But ultimately, my plan is going to... So these are things that, as you're working out your own theology and your own understanding of who God is and how he interacts with us, you need to come to some terms over this. Because see, it could really throw you for a loop if you staunchly said, God controls everything. But then at the same time, somebody fails to follow God's plan and it messes up your world. Well, God, if you're in charge, if you run everything, how come? Okay? God, I have served you my whole life. I have submitted to anything you've ever asked of me. Why do I get cancer? You see the tension that's there? See, providence is very, very frustrating. Because it's really easy to say, God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. And he's in control. Until it doesn't go the way you think it should go. And then your whole faith goes to this. God, you didn't, you didn't, it didn't work. How? This isn't. And so as we're reading through this story, and I honestly, I don't have an answer for you. I really don't. I've been frustrating with this all week long. Lord, what's the, what's the story? What is the end result? How do I, what's the moral here? The moral here is learn how to discern. Whether you throw dice, or whether you learn to listen for that still, small voice, or whether you find it in the Word of God that's printed on the page, or whether it's a hymn that you're reading out of the hymnal, or whether you've got a devotional book, and all of a sudden this paragraph jumps off the page at you, and you just know that that's God speaking. Or in my personal case, I can tell because, oh my goodness, my heart is beating so fast, it's going to jump out of my chest. And then, then I know that that's God doing something in my heart, in, 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 for me, telling me, prompting me, guiding me, leading me. It's, it's individual. I mean, I hate to say that, because really when I was a young person, I said, how do you know you're in love? I'll get it now. Same, same, unfortunately. How do you know it's God? You'll know. You will know. You might get it wrong a couple times, but eventually you'll get it right. So, what I see here in this story of ordinary people living their ordinary lives but interacting with an extraordinary God is that I believe God is indeed over all. And he is in charge. And he does have an ultimate plan. And Romans 8.28 says he can turn anything into good. But there's still the element of the human choice. And so things may not always go exactly as the perfect plan could have been. But that doesn't negate God's overarching power or providence or abilities.
And whether you use dice, find some way to discern when he's leading you and talking to you and letting you know his plan. Because ultimately, when it's all said and done, the bottom line, you want to hear him call your name. You want to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful with the things that I put into your hands. Enter now into the rest that has been prepared for you. Join with all of the fellows around the throne and worship the Father forever. That's the goal. So, as you're chewing on this in the next few days, which I hope you do, I would ask you to just be careful to think about what does it mean when we say providence? What does it mean to understand God's interaction in your situation? And what role do you play in bringing about God's plan and purpose for whatever it is that's going on in your world? Let's pray.